Section 3 of The End of the Middle Age, 1273-1453, by Eleanor Constance Lodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2. Italy, 1273-1313, Part 1. The history of Italy during this period is one of great difficulty, since it is impossible to study it as a whole. The country was split up into separate states, independent republics, and subject towns. Any sense of national unity was totally lacking. Patriotism, though strong, was wholly local or even municipal. Several causes had tended to bring about this condition of complete disunion. Italian geography was the original and dominant reason. The long, narrow shape of the peninsula rendered communication difficult between the extremities. The country was divided from north to south by the chain of the Apennines, whilst the lateral spurs of these mountains split up the two long divisions into more or less detached portions, and the plain of Lombardy in the north was very much isolated from the rest. This natural disunion had been strengthened by the nominal subjection of Italy to the emperors, whose dominion, however shadowy, had been sufficient to prevent the rise of any strong national power. Whilst the influence of the popes, who were temporal lords in their own estates, as well as the heads of Christendom, produced much the same effect. Add to this the fact that for years there had been a continuous struggle going on between pope and emperor, in which all Italians became more or less involved, either as Guelphs supporting the papacy or as Ghibelline on the imperial side, and it will be seen that party feuds were one more drop in the cup of discord and division. These party enmities and party names continued long after they had lost most of their original significance. Not only were Guelph states at war with Ghibelline provinces, but each state was itself split up into rival factions, whose chief bond of union was common hostility to one another. Advance in Italy did not take the line of growth toward nationality, as was the case in countries such as England and France. But in the north, where progress was most rapid, the town tended more and more to become the unit of political life. Cities became strong centers of influence, whether they were republics or under the control of some dominant family, and the large cities gradually obtained sway over the smaller towns and surrounded themselves with subject communes. By the 15th century the chief of these municipalities had developed into regular city-states, but at the close of the 13th century this process was only in the making. In 1273, Savoy, which was in our own day to become the center of Italian unity, was scarcely part of Italy at all. Lying to the west of the Alps and originally belonging to the kingdom of Arles, it had split off as an almost independent province, a fief of the empire alone. Its rulers had indeed subsequently enriched themselves by the acquisition of Piedmont, but for the present it stood entirely aloof from the complications and difficulties of the peninsula. Of the Lombard cities, Milan had for a long time been by far the most prominent. 
It had been a republic from at least the early 12th century and had begun almost as soon to assert its supremacy over many of the surrounding and smaller towns. Now, at the close of the 13th century, the republican independence of Milan was being rapidly lost. Martino della Torre, a Guelph leader, had headed the burgesses against the nobles and made himself lord of the city in 1209 only in his turn to succumb to the superior power of Odo Visconti in 1277. But the period of complete Visconti supremacy as Dukes of Milan had not yet come, and the city was weakened by a protracted struggle between these two families for some time longer. The other chief powers in the north were Genoa and Venice, the first was important as a commercial centre and was to become involved in trade disputes with other towns, especially Pisa and Venice, but otherwise she was fairly isolated from the history of the peninsula, occupied with her own concerns and with quarrels between her own rival families. Venice, the other great trading state, directed her attention almost entirely toward the east. Here lay her chief power, and her commercial and maritime supremacy, which was undisputed until the rise of Genoa, introduced a formidable rival and a constant source of war and quarrel. Venetian history differs from that of most Italian towns, partly owing to her peculiar constitution. A doge of Venice had existed ever since the seventh century. He was a duke elected for life, at first by the whole body of the people, and in early days invested with almost supreme despotic power, though this was gradually usurped by his ambitious colleagues. By 1273, the election was in the hands of 41 councillors chosen by a complicated system of drawing lots from amongst the whole body of the great council. This great council had superseded the assembly of the whole people when the growth of population had rendered such a meeting totally impossible. Though at first elective and quite representative, it had gradually changed into an exclusive hereditary aristocracy. From 1319 all form of election ceased, and it was understood that every son of a member entered the council at the age of twenty-five. The doge was assisted by a senate or pregadi, annually renewed from the great council, but he was now really under the complete control of six ducal councillors, a sort of ministerial cabinet, without whom he could do nothing. From 1310 a further committee was chosen by the great council, which, though at first only intended for a time of emergency, became a permanent body known as the Council of Ten. This council formed a sort of court of justice to deal with exceptional cases, and was a strong weapon in the hands of the ruling aristocracy. Later it added to its judicial functions and interfered in most affairs of state. Although the constitution of Venice was thus very oligarchical and aristocratic, in the hands, that is, of a small number of the upper classes, it was not in any sense feudal. It was one of the peculiarities of the city that no distinction existed between merchants and nobles. All the chief patricians were great traders and guildsmen, not military and territorial lords. The power of Venice had gradually increased by the spread of commercial settlements and the subjection of surrounding lands, 
until the name came to include much more than the islands on the Rialto, which formed the city itself. It was not, however, till the 15th century that Venetian territory reached its full development and that Venice became a great mainland power, participating in Italian complications and even in European politics. Tuscany, divided by the Apennines from the Lombard Plain, was split into a number of city-states. Pisa, Siena, Lucca all have interesting histories and rose to prominence at different times, but the fame of Florence has dwarfed the fame of other Tuscan towns and gave her for a time supremacy over the whole district. The internal history of Florence had for a long time been marked by a heated struggle between nobles and people for power in the government. The people had, however, one great source of strength and obtained some training in the art of governing through their craft guilds, societies of those engaged in different crafts or industries which were well organized and very prosperous. In 1282, a great victory was won for the popular side by the recognition of the priors or leaders of the crafts as the chief magistrates of Florence, and by the rule that the nobles must enter a guild in order to qualify for office. In 1293, a further step was taken by insisting that all officials should actually practice at the trade of their guild, while the nobles were subjected to especial severe rules in matters of justice. The triumph of the people over the nobles was now complete, but it tended to be an oligarchical triumph all the same, for power was largely monopolized by the wealthy burgesses. Some amount of democratic or popular control was, however, maintained by means of the Parlamento, a mass meeting of all citizens which had authority to alter the laws by an appointed committee or balia. The great defect of this constitution was its instability, since the governing body was changed every two months. As some remedy for this, in 1321, a consultative council was added of twelve buonomini, good men, who were to hold office for six months instead of two, and in 1323 a plan of choosing officials by lot was introduced to satisfy the passion for equality which prevailed amongst the Florentines. The government now consisted of, number one, the signori of nine members known as priors of the arts, guilds, with the gonfalonier of justice at their head, six chosen from the major arts, the more important guilds of bankers, lawyers, merchants, and so forth, and two from the minor arts of less important trades. These were changed every two months. Number two, Sixteen gonfaloniers of the companies. These were captains of the old military divisions of Florence and were responsible for police and war. Number three, twelve buonomini, chosen every six months to give advice to the signory. These two latter bodies were called the colleges. Number four, the council of the people, consisting of three hundred members all belonging to the guilds headed by the captain of the people. Number five, the commune or council of the podesta a body of two hundred and fifty members some of whom could be nobles every two years a scrutiny was held an election of all considered worthy of office the names of those who gained a sufficient number of votes were put into bags and then drawn out by lot when officials were needed 
The chief glory of Florence was her preeminence in art and literature. If Italy was the teacher of Europe, Florence was the teacher of Italy. Endless internal struggles, family feuds, and fierce warfare seem to have had little or no power to check the work of writer, painter, and builder. Indeed, the prevailing turbulence appears to have acted as a fresh incentive to energy, or perhaps it was the outward sign of the fiery zeal which was spreading through the people and leading to such brilliant results in the development of a literary and artistic renaissance. To the southeast of Tuscany lay the states of the church, consolidated as a principality for the Holy See by Innocent III, and now comprising, besides Rome and the Campania, the march of Ancona and loose claims over Romagna. The Emperor Rudolf gave security to the popes for their temporal possessions by renouncing all claims to imperial sovereignty over them, but such a territorial position, though probably a necessity at the time, brought many difficulties in its train. It was this, above all else, which tended to weaken the spiritual prestige of the popes by involving them in the secular interests of a temporal dominion. In the south of the peninsula, the kingdom of Naples and Sicily, united under Norman sway in the twelfth century, was the most extensive stretch of land under one ruler which yet existed in Italy. The Hohenstaufen emperors had gained the crown by marriage, and this had been one of the many causes of quarrel between themselves and the pope of that day, who called to his assistance Charles of Anjou, brother of Saint-Louis of France. Charles, by a victory over King Manfred of Sicily, and by the defeat and death of Conradine, last of the Hohenstaufen, had obtained possession of the kingdom in 1268, and by 1273 was the most powerful prince in Italy, bidding fair to gain ascendancy over the whole peninsula, thanks to his own good fortune and the support of the papacy. He was not only king of the two Sicilies, as Naples and Sicily together are often called, but also imperial vicar and senator of Rome, whilst several towns of the north acknowledged him as lord. In the period covered by this chapter, a few main lines of policy and progress give some sort of connection to the whole. The ambitions and eventual failure of Charles of Anjou, the continuation of papal pretensions, whilst the actual power of the popes is gradually being lost, the attitude of the emperors toward their old dominions, and the feeling of Italy itself in regard to the imperial claims affect to some extent all parts of the country, while in the north the rivalry between the city-states and the gradual advance of Milan, Florence, and Venice are going on continuously. In 1273 an excellent pope sat on the throne of St. Peter. Gregory X, was above all else an advocate of peace. His highest wish was harmony throughout Christendom, which might lead to a united effort of Europe for the recovery of the Holy Land. To prepare the way for a successful crusade was the leading motive of his life. Something Gregory was able to accomplish as the peacemaker of Europe. He negotiated between the warring cities of Venice, Genoa, and Bologna. He pacified for a time the struggle between Guelphs and Ghibellines, declaring the doctrine strange in those days of intolerance. They are Ghibelline, it is true, but they are citizens' men, Christians. At the Council of Lyon in 1274, 
he succeeded, if only for a time, in uniting the Greek and Latin churches, and inducing the Greek emperor of Constantinople to acknowledge papal supremacy. At this same council he recognized the new emperor, Rudolf of Habsburg, who renounced his Italian pretensions and promised to head the forthcoming crusade. At the same time, rules were drawn up for future papal elections, which were to be solely in the hands of the cardinals in private conclave. Thus it was hoped to secure a speedy choice, and to avoid the scandals which so often accompanied the proceedings. Peace and concord seemed secure at last, when Gregory's sudden death in 1276 broke up the European confederation which he had just effected with so much labor, and left Christendom to fall back into a state of feud worse even than before. The crusade was abandoned, and the popes who followed were little more than Italian princes, themselves concerned far more with temporal concerns and family quarrels than with the welfare of the church at large. Three popes followed one another in rapid succession. The third of these, John the Twenty-First, 1276, a scholar and a mathematician, had no love for monks or friars, and was regarded with great suspicion by an age which looked on learning as a dangerous gift. When he was killed by the falling of a roof in his own palace, it was held to be a direct judgment, and visions were recounted in which the evil one himself had been seen hewing down the supports. Next came a series of popes representing the leading families which were struggling for power in Rome itself. Nicholas III, 1277 to 1280, belonged to the great house of Orsini. His successor, Martin IV, 1280 to 1285, was elected by the influence of Charles of Anjou and merely ruled as his creature. Honorius IV, 1285 to 1287, was a member of the Roman family of Savelli and was exalted at the expense of the Orsini. This pope, who was such a martyr to gout that he could not rise or sit or open and shut his hands unaided, invented some mechanical contrivance which turned him and moved him and enabled him to celebrate mass before the people. The next pope, Nicholas IV, 1288 to 1292, represented the third great family in Rome, the Colonna, who now had their turn of public honors and dignities, and party feuds rose higher than ever in the city. So disastrous were these disputes that on the death of Nicholas, two years passed before a successor was fixed upon, and then a wholly new departure was made in the choice of a holy hermit of obscure birth, who had spent his life in solitude and self-torment after the fashion of the saints of those days, a strange preparation for the public position to which he was now exalted. Already worn out, both in body and mind, by the life which he had led, the hermit protested in vain that he was unfit for the office. But the cardinals felt that they had been divinely guided in their choice, and he was inaugurated as Celestine V, 1294 and grand papal robes placed above his own coarse dress of sackcloth. It did not require more than a few weeks to show the cardinals what a mistake they had made. The new pope was totally ignorant and lacking in sense of dignity. 
he fell into the unscrupulous hands of Charles of Anjou, whom he believed to be a friend, and was easily duped by all who surrounded him. He gave away any dignity, created any office for which he was asked. Indeed, he could easily be persuaded to bestow the same post over and over again. One of the cardinals, the ambitious Benedetto Gaetani, had peculiar influence over Celestine, and is supposed to have been largely responsible for inducing him to lay down his unwelcome dignity. Rumor indeed says that he resorted to the unworthy trick of terrifying him in the night through a hole in the wall, and thus making him believe that a messenger from God was urging him to leave the world. Certain it is that the Pope, after five months, could bear no more, announced his abdication to the conclave, and fled back with haste to his old cave in the mountains, whilst the cunning Benedetto was chosen in his place under the name of Boniface the Eighth. End of section three.